We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcasts person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Many in the world see the influence of the United States as a force for good. It applies pressure on authoritarian regimes such as Iran to abide by human rights, and it supports nations such as Ukraine defending themselves against imperial aggression. But others argue that the Afghanistan and Iraq wars show that American exceptionalism and the attempt to play the world's policemen have wreaked havoc with the rest of the world, which is still paying a price for America's foreign policy. Today we're delving into part two of our debate, Is America a Force for Good in the World? With foreign policy experts Shadi Hamid and Samuel Moyne. Our host for the debate is journalist and academic Philippa Thomas. If you missed part one of this debate, just scroll back on your feed to the Sunday debate and listen to Sunday's episode. But now let's go to part two with our host Philippa Thomas. Here's Philippa with more. Shadi, I'm going to pick up on where you are because you are contrasting that time when you were an undergrad and in Georgetown. And I remember at that time reporting from Ground Zero and Washington, going to flag factories, a flag on every lawn, the Patriot Act, the, you know, the terror and the clampdown uh, are, are very vivid still. Sarah asks, do you think, uh, Shadi Hamid, if Trump was re-elected, you would change your mind on this? Well, no, because I didn't change my mind the first time Trump was elected. In fact, I have to say that I was somewhat relieved over the four years of Trump's tenure. And I know that might sound weird, but considering what Trump had said in the lead up to him becoming president was even crazier than what he actually did. He talked about putting Muslims in a registry. He defended the internment of Japanese Americans. And yes, the four years of Trump in power were bad. 
but we never got to the level of catastrophe. Why? Because we had a vigorous media that was challenging Trump every step of the way. We had a Democratic Party that was defending Muslims during the time of the Muslim ban. And, you know, some of you might remember, but one of the ways that you could signal your anti-Trump credentials was to be ostentatiously pro-Muslim. You would go overboard with liking Muslims and all that. And that tells us something about our two-party system. For all of its faults, if Republicans for a certain period are anti-Muslim or anti-immigrant, Democrats were able to step in and offer a different narrative. And I have no reason to doubt that if if God forbid Trump wins again in 2024, that he will be facing many of those same challenges and some of them might be even more vigorous. But again, what is democracy about? Democracy is seeing outcomes that you really don't like and coming to terms with that reality and then fighting for another day through the ballot box. That is always what we have at our disposal. And we're back to the relative again, aren't we? And, and Sam, Samuel Moyne, I want to put a question to you that's just come in from our audience. Uh, Joe Biden said he would rebuild US alliances, but he hasn't. Aren't both parties becoming more America first? I detect perhaps in that question a note of disapproval. Well, Joe Biden's record is mixed. And it's it's true that especially with regard to China, and our trade policy, Biden has done things that are more continuous with Trump than not. But Vladimir Putin gave uh, certain American hawks a gift by declaring an immoral, unnecessary war on Ukraine, which led to a, a rekindling of the Western alliance and an embrace of NATO and its enduring importance that Donald Trump can never undo, even if he's elected. So in that regard, Biden has done a lot to rebuild the status quo anti-Trump and, and the alliance structure. Where I think he's, he's failed is, as Shadi says, registering adequately the protest vote that millions of Americans made in favor of Trump twice. Uh, more the second time than the first, and figuring out how to make American democracy appealing to its own citizens. And that's the question that I think has to be faced before we can even get to what, what it would mean for America to play a beneficent role in the world, which sadly, I think uh, it's, it's just falling short. And this, I think, brings us back round to Charlie's opening point that if you look at the other alternatives, Let's think relatively. The U.S. is a force for good in the world. Um, Ahmed asks, Professor Moyne, do you think the U.N. is the institution which could bring about a, a better alternative to U.S. hegemony? The truth is that the United Nations emerged originally as an emanation of U.S. hegemony, and it, it survived because the Soviets were willing to go along in 1945. But as a great power arrangement, which is you know so vivid in the Security Council and who gets permanent membership and vetoes, uh, it's also hobbled because the United Nations as built uh, can't constrain great powers. It can't stop America when it's fought, which has fought many more wars of choice than the Soviet Union or Russia ever did, and it can't constrain Russia. And I don't think anyone knows how to get beyond that limitation in the United Nations. That's why I think it will be much more plausible as the multipolar world that's already existing continues to look to Europeans 
uh, to look to other regional blocs to provide um, more justice and peace than Americans have sadly been able to provide in 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 their unipolar moment. Actually, when you that's the first mention of the Europeans, which maybe reflects relative weight in terms of um, global influence. But I did note that when uh, Elon Musk said, Twitter, I'm back, you know, this bird is flying. It was an EU commissioner who, you know, tweeted him and said, well, you know, where we are, there's going to be regulation, you know, prepared to stand up to power. Uh, and Shadi, your thoughts on on whether Europe is is one of those powers that's perhaps been underestimated or not? So at the end of the day, European power depends on American power, that without the U.S. security umbrella, um, countries like Germany um, and you know Sweden and Denmark wouldn't be able to strengthen their welfare systems and devote so much to improving their standard of living um, because you know that freed them from spending on their own military budget. It, it, it liberated them to have this idea of progress that was about trade and cooperation and economic interdependence. Part of that dream has turned, as we've seen, into a nightmare where the Nord Stream pipeline that Germany marshaled as one of its signature uh, policy innovations that tied it closer to Russia, now we're seeing the destructive impacts of that choice. This belief that if you just trade with Putin's regime and tie yourself to him, that somehow this will lead to peace. Thankfully, Americans in their you know somewhat um, exceptional and even isolationist way of looking at the world, we want to be apart. We want to be separate. So we're not going to ever have our energy needs completely dependent in such a way on a foreign power. And that's good. So I think there are major failures in the European approach that we're seeing that without military power, without increasing your military budget and getting to 2%, which was the NATO target that Germany had been resisting for such a long time, without that, there is a risk that countries like Russia will come in and try to dominate you. And, and we've seen that that's not a hypothetical. That is happening as we speak. And Germany now in particular is in an extremely, extremely vulnerable position because of those choices. Um, coming back to your mention, Sam, of, of America as also the standard bearer for, for capitalism. Uh, the, the, there's a question here from the audience. Is the failure of America to be a flag bearer of democracy? Our audience member says a sign of the failure of capitalism as the monetary policies of America control its democracy. I think that's a difficult question, but I, I do think it's very important to look beyond the hype and rhetoric with which these succeeding liberal great powers, your your country before mine, have ruled the world and look at what they're really doing, which uh, has consistently been to prefer market freedom to political freedom. And I actually think that market freedom can make a a big contribution to human welfare, although the growth it involves can devastate the planet, as we now know. But there are many different forms of spreading markets. We had welfare states. The United Kingdom built one. West Europeans built uh, welfare states in the middle of the 20th century, which the United States never did, and cer certainly not to the same extent. And people around the world don't just want market freedom for the rich, but welfare for all. And that is what America so fervently 
has repudiated in the last 30 or 40 years. That's what I call neoliberalism. And so whoever is going to lead the world needs to find an economic model that exploits the potential of markets, but uh, also understands the importance of their constraining them and redistributing their fruits and making them sustainable. America has not even begun to have that conversation, I think, in its externally facing foreign policy. There's no reason Europeans couldn't, and someone will, because that's what's appealing, and that's what makes democracy work, is welfare. Do either of you think, Melissa asks, that China and the US can live together, or will there be an inevitable confrontation? We had to come to this at some point in the hour, I think. Shadi, do you think confrontation is looking increasingly inevitable? How would you how would you phrase it? Well, look, we already have confrontation at some level. The question is, how bad does it get? Do we end up actually having a direct military or even an indirect military confrontation that raises the stakes? I certainly hope not. But I, I, I'm of the belief that when you try to appeal to the better angels of authoritarian regimes by reaching out to them, by trying to bring them into the WTO. Let's recall that part of American policy for decades was about integrating China into the global markets. And that is what helped China become an economic powerhouse, not in spite of the US, but at least in part because of the US being willing to bring it in. What we learn with these authoritarian regimes is that you give them something, you try to bring them in and they take advantage of you. They see that as weakness and then they press for their advantage. And that is what China has been doing. So I think that, look, we tried to integrate China, but there cannot be two, there shouldn't be, and there probably can't be two simultaneous superpowers. So at some level, there is going to be a zero-sum competition. I hope we can find ways to avert confrontation, but it shouldn't be at the cost of American primacy. We shouldn't just keep on giving things to the Chinese regime in the hope that this will make them feel better because it probably won't. And we're seeing how they become more and more aggressive regardless of what the US does. Well, you're talking about American primacy. Sam, you were talking about the necessity of a multipolar world. How do you respond? So I think I disagree most with, with Shadi on, on this point. The fact is that most of recorded history is multipolarity, uh, different power centers that coexist and uh, sometimes get into conflict, but often kind of expand through their the innate appeal of their ideas and practices. And a lot is going to turn on whether America once again chooses a confrontational, indeed military, stance towards this rival it has. And we're, we're in the early days, but that's what's scariest about the future. And it's mostly in American hands. America is world-spanning in its power. It has more than 500 military bases and many more drone bases. China has one overseas base in Djibouti on the Horn of Africa. It's very hard to say ideologically that China is an expansionist power where predecessor empires have been. We can get into the South China Sea and Taiwan over which there's been some saber rattling, 
but on the basis of very slender evidence to declare the necessity of confrontation, especially military confrontation, is to write the obituaries right now of millions of people who will die as a result. Why? On what basis? If I could jump in there. So I think, first of all, this is a good reason that the U.S. needs to maintain its military edge. And luckily, up until now, the gap, if you look at military spending between China and the U.S., is tremendous. The latest uh, defense spending bill for the U.S., is around 850 billion. For China, it's around 230 billion, uh, give or take, depending on exchange rates. So there is still a massive gap, and that should be maintained. And that also shows that China, at least at this current moment, doesn't really have a way to effectively confront the US. The US is still in a stronger position. But I would also ask Sam, I think, how is the responsibility? Ours, how, especially when China has become more aggressive, precisely as we were allowing them to enter the global marketplace. If anyone is wondering about this, it's worth going back to Bill Clinton's 2020 speech where he talks about the promise of bringing China in. That was a fig leaf towards the Chinese regime. How did they return the favor? How did Russia return the favor where Germany tried to bring them into an economically interdependent relationship? I think there is quite a bit of evidence that shows that China is not willing to be a good faith actor. And I should also say, I think the discourse around the rise of China is wildly overhyped. I mean, China is literally destroying its economy as we speak through its absurd zero COVID policy. Americans, especially, unfortunately, my American liberal friends were like, oh, if, if only we could be more like China at the start of the pandemic and create these instant hospitals that the Chinese can build in five days. Now we're seeing the dark side of the Chinese model. They can't adapt. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. And Shadi, can I ask you, uh, from what you've just been saying, are you saying that America's military advantage and its strong man edge is a part of it being a force for good in the world? Yes, that we need to maintain that edge, because if China ever comes into military parity, they're going to be more emboldened to challenge, I mean, not just U.S. primacy in a broad sense, but God knows what they might try to do. Um, vis-a-vis Taiwan. So, Shadi, just having picked up that point, I want to bring in a question from Derek, which, which to you in particular, saying, Shadi, how do you account for the Iraq and Afghanistan wars? How can you just call them mistakes, but we're still better than China? Well, so I don't just call them mistakes. I call them some of the greatest strategic blunders of the modern era. I consider that to be a moral stain on America. Um, And not just that, the fact that we have a terrible Middle East policy, we can talk about our support, our unquestioning support for the Israeli occupation of the Palestinians. We can talk about how we prop up the Saudi regime, which is one of the most repressive in the world with Mohammed bin Salman or MBS. These are all moral stains. But my solution or my what I'm proposing is that instead of giving up hope on the U.S., each and every one of us, if we're American citizens, but also if we're watching from afar, that we try to do whatever we can to make America better. If America is capable of changing, then there is the possibility that we can learn from the sins of the past, including in Iraq and Afghanistan. But for me, there is no moral equivalency between, let's say, the Iraq war and what China is doing to the Uyghurs in its own territory to its own ostensibly Chinese subjects or citizens. I don't believe that America is capable of committing genocide on its own American citizens. And maybe there are people who think that that's possible or they consider racism to be equivalent to genocide. But this is where I think a lot of the moral equivalency arguments don't stand up. We have to be clear about what evil is. America might be bad. We do bad things, but we do not rise to the level of the evil that we see when it comes to the Chinese Communist Party, for example, in their genocide against their Muslim minority. So that is a key point, Sam, isn't it? It's Shadi's argument for uh, the case that the U.S. on balance is a force for good in the world. Do you take that on? No, I. You know, I guess I'm not sure the point being made that that America is is not stooping currently to the Ch- the Chinese levels of iniquity. Well, it did in the past. There was genocide on the American continent, and not not to mention slavery. And I, that doesn't mean that I'm making a claim about moral equivalence. 
and certainly not excusing Chinese practices, but the Iraq war led to millions of dead. That's just not the number that have died in Ukraine to date or in uh, Western China uh, in the internment, it, which is despicable of so many. So we can't have a double standard where America can make you know troubling mistakes, but we then support unholy military spending so it can keep other powers at bay who show no evidence of military threat to, to others. Um, with the sole counterexample of Taiwan, which, of course, China interprets as historically part of its country. Uh, can I bring in another question uh, from the audience, which which is about the U.S. and its choice of allies, saying, you know, what about the U.S. continuing uh, alliance with Saudi Arabia, despite the brutality of that regime? Well, pre you know, precisely as I mentioned, and, you know, for those of who know my work and what I write about, I'm very outspoken in my criticisms of pro-American dictators in the Middle East. And that doesn't just apply to Trump's indulgence of MBS, but also Barack Obama in turning a blind eye towards uh, to the return of dictatorship during the Arab Spring. What happened? Islamist parties started doing well and even winning in democratic elections. And then the Obama administration, after their initial enthusiasm at the start of the Arab Spring, really turned in a very different direction. And one thing that I lay out um, in my book is the lead up to the coup in Egypt as just one example of how the US turned its back on its own ideals. So I'm very comfortable calling the US out and calling out US officials on that, on that score. But I also believe that down the road, if enough of us try to change the conversation. I think we are seeing some of this when it comes to Saudi Arabia. I think there's a growing sense among Americans that this relationship goes against not just our ideals, but our interests. But the great thing about America is I can make that case and I can hope to see that change, God willing, in, the, you know, in my lifetime in the next 10 to 15 years. I, I'll just say one, you know, one thing about what, what Sam just mentioned, it's maybe a quibble, but I think it's important because it gets at a fundamental difference. Millions of Iraqis died, but it is not the U.S. that killed all of those millions. We have to be careful here about how we describe this. Yes, we have a lot of- No, I mean more regionally. I, I take your point yeah, yeah. completely on So I think intention is important here. I don't think as bad as some American officials are, I don't think they wake up in the morning and think to themselves- how do we inflict more pain and suffering on the Iraqi people? I think there were some Bush administration- We're talking about impact, aren't we? We're talking about whether America but, but is I, a force I do for good in the world, not whether it I do wants think, to be. But there's the break it, you bought it principle. When you, when you topple a government, all the consequences are on you. Yeah, so I think, I think intention does matter. I don't deny that for the people who are on the receiving end, it doesn't matter what the intention is. But if we're being analytically fair, I think intention is relevant because it gets to the moral distinctions that we make between the US or say Britain on one hand and Russia and China. There are there are Chinese and Russian officials who wake up in the morning and they do think to themselves, how can we make the Ukrainian people suffer? How can we kill or re-educate in scare quotes more Muslims in our own territory? So I think that does actually tell us something important about the nature of this competition. And I think this is a good point 
at which to pause because I'm going to give each of you a minute or so to sum up your case. And I'm going to remind our audience, thank you for the questions that are coming in. There's another uh, one I'd like to put at the end. Uh, but when you've heard first Sam and then Shadi summing up their case, I'm going to be asking you to vote again on what you think. The question we're looking at today on Intelligence Squared is, do you think on balance the US is a force for good in the world? Now, Sam Samuel Moyne, I'm going to ask you uh, first to give us a minute or so on where you stand. I'll conclude by saying that the question of whether anything is good can't just be a comparative question. It leads you to some dark places where you say the United States may have made some mistakes, but it's at least it's not even worse. And that's, I think, a first step towards thinking about whether the United States is good. But our, our biggest obligation is asking, what's the relationship between the good it's providing and the better world we have to bring about, including through placing pressure on the United States? And for that reason, I think the answer ought to be that uh, whatever good America is, it's not good enough, not by a long shot. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, Shadi, over to you for your final statement. Should the perfect be the enemy of the good? What is good enough? We live in a real world where there are trade-offs. We can only try to be better, but we're never going to reach our ideal. And in this sense, I think I'm a somewhat unusual person to defend maybe the you know this idea of America as a force for good because I'm not someone who wants to whitewash the past. I do want to acknowledge and have a moral reckoning with where America has gone wrong, especially in the region that I focus the most on, the Middle East, but you could also extend that to Latin America. But I think there is a way to have a middle ground here, to engage in that moral reckoning, because part of the American idea is this idea of self-correction and self-criticism. So I would pose the question to the audience and ask them this, do you believe that America can be better? Do you want America to be better? And if you answer either either of those questions, potentially with a yes, or, or you're leaning towards a yes, I would urge you to consider voting in the affirmative for this resolution that America for all of its faults is and can be a force for good. The alternative is testing the proposition of a Chinese-led world order or a world where China continues to make inroads into Africa and the Middle East. It might not have physical bases yet, but in terms of tying itself economically to governments that are, are, are poor and struggling, we are seeing that. It is happening right before our eyes. Now, Shadi, I'm going to actually ask if we can put the vote to the audience just because of the time. And I hope you don't feel badly done to your case has come through pretty strongly. So can we put our poll up on the screen uh, for the audience? Uh, the question is, is the United States a force for good in the world? You can vote yes, you can vote no. You may still be undecided as to what you think. And just as a reminder, at the beginning of the hour of our event, uh, you voted agree 35%, disagree 38%, and undecided 27%. I am looking at all the devices spread in front of me and going to see the final result come up in the next few minutes. 
I'm going to come to Sam. If you're in power, what one thing would you do to make the US a more positive influence? I think that the United States, contrary to Shadi, could afford to lower its military budget and use the funds for welfare to make America as a model more appealing because really no force in history is is more transformative than what millions of people across the world demand from their governments and want out of life. And America's first and foremost role is to model an appealing option in world affairs more than to confront evil regimes. Thank you very much for that thought. And the results are coming in. The final vote result. Thank you to the audience for being with us, for being engaged. On the issue is the US a force for good in the world on balance, agreeing 51%. Disagree 39% and undecided still 10% down from the original 27. So the eyes have it. Uh, by a very small margin, the, it has been decided in our debate that the US is, on balance, a force for good in the world. I'd like to thank you both uh, for a great conversation, encourage you in the audience to check out the latest books by our speakers, Shadi and Samuel. I'm Philippa Thomas. Do have a lovely evening. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.